This is a podcast from Radio Molly, a digital radio station for Irish literature, broadcasting from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, located on Dublin's St. Stephen's Green. For more from Radio Molly and the Museum of Literature Ireland, visit radio.molly.ie. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that buying Molly membership for yourself, your family or a friend is the best way to support the museum and its programming. Head over to molly.ie forward slash membership to sign up. Thank you for listening. UCD has a particular focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. So we've come together with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, in this project called Past, Present and Pride. It's a, it's a way for us to, to work with, to interview, to hear the voices of LGBTI writers, um, Irish writers and perhaps some international writers, a way to give voice to, to the LGBTI experience, to advance um, issues of, of diversity, inclusion and equality. I'm Paul Dalton. I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I work in UCD and I also work in, in St. Vincent's uh, Hospital in Allen Park. I'm delighted to say our, our guest today is Colm Tobin, uh, a man known to many. Um, it gives me great pleasure to, to welcome Colm to, to Molly and indeed to, to past, present and pride. So, Colm Tobin, novelist, journalist, poet, critic, professor of humanities at Columbia University, chancellor of the University of Liverpool. Welcome to Molly. Welcome to Newman House, the, the foundation house of UCD, your alma mater. Um, welcome to this project, Past, Present and Pride, an initiative with equality, diversity and inclusion at UCD. And welcome back to Dublin um, and, and to the world post-quarantine, because I think you came back from LA recently and you've been in quarantine. What's it like being out in the world again? Ah, well, there's no real world at the moment, is there? So we're all still indoors and it's all still pretty, pretty dull. It's good. I mean, if you're a writer, it's good. If you're a wedding planner, it's not. It's a disaster, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you'd spend some time in, in L.A. before, before coming back to, to um, Dublin. What? I, I, I was in New York and um, it was very clear from the week before, um, this is March, that something really bad was coming towards New York. Everyone was aware of it and everyone was aware that there was a row going on between de Blasio, the mayor, and um, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, and between Andrew Cuomo and Trump, and that we were all being caught in this snare that they had established, these, 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 these white guys had established. And um, luckily in the end, Cuomo prevailed, but it took him a very long time. So on the 10th of March, I fled. I just went to the airport and I fled. I didn't, you know, it was spring break at Columbia and it was clear anyway that we were not going to go. I mean, it was pretty clear to me we were not going to go back. So yeah. I, I went to LA and I, um, where my partner lives and, and we had a nice time and we settled down for six months. We only saw each other. And uh, I did a lot of work. Yeah, you did a lot of work. Yeah. Colm, you were born in Enniscorthy in County Wexford in 1955, um, the setting for, for many of your novels. You've said that as a child that you, you watched a lot and that sometimes it was the only thing you did was, was to watch. What, what were you watching as a child? Adults. <laughs> yeah. You know... And yeah, just um, listening, watching, trying to make sense of things. Yeah, and and watching as a child, and and as opposed to kind of being in the middle of things, being. I have that feeling, yeah, that um, I was more content watching, um, but it was pretty normal as well. I mean, I, I played tennis and I did everything else. You know, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, I wasn't one of those sort of isolated, messed up kids that, you know, everyone worries about, yeah. you know, yeah. and it wasn't like that. Yeah, yeah. But but there was a sense of some kind of internal world kind of watching, making yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I making... have a funny memory and I can remember things very clearly. And I could even then, you know, 
if someone said something, I'd remember what they had said and I'd remember what they said previously. And, you know, that's, that's just sort of, I suppose, noticing. Yeah. Um, I understand that you didn't read until you were almost, not, um, almost nine. Yeah. Well, how was that? I just or what didn't. Um, I just didn't, you know, and um, it was fine because if a comic book came, my sister read it for me. But she often turned the pages too quickly. But nonetheless, um, um, yeah, she did that for me and I just didn't, it just didn't connect. I mean, it just, I just didn't see it and I just didn't, you know. Was, it, was that a concern for people around you, do you because, think? because, you see, the, my father was a teacher and the yeah. family was all about education. And the idea of being stupid, you know, was not something that the family was ready to entertain. <laughs> Really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and was that a was that a kind of a, oh he's he's stupid he's he's I was slow. stupid, but I did overhear her saying my mother to someone, Colm is the one who's not you know the others are very good academically. You know, well, she wouldn't have said academically, but very good at school and stuff. Colm is the one that's really you know, and that I, yeah. Well, and teachers would have said to her, you know, he's just not not listening. He's not paying any attention. He's not able to do anything. Yeah. yeah, the food of the family. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure there are many parents who'd be very pleased to hear that. Um, we we have such expectations, don't we, on 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 children to do certain things at the right time. Yeah, academically. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I was reminded of um, it. It's Donal, isn't it? In 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 Nora Webster, um, that child, that character who, who sees the world uh, through, through the lens of a camera um, and, 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 has, and stammers. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that figure of Donald in Nora Webster is more or less a self-portrait, but I, I didn't have a camera and I didn't do what he does with the photographs, smudging them and stuff. I have a friend who did that, whose way of dealing with the whole world was to get a camera as early as possible and to go around with it, but taking photographs of the oddest things, you know. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, that, that, that Donald is pretty much a self-portrait. Yeah, yeah. He, he, and, and he kind of saw the world through the camera lens, uh, and you started to write poetry quite young. Yeah, about 12. 12, um, yeah. I would have, you know, yeah, I wrote poetry. And I wrote poetry right through until about the age of 20. Uh, but um, writing poetry in Ireland is a dangerous business because there are so many good poets that if you were even a mediocre one, you'd be despised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and what was it? What was it, Colm, that, that, got a, that I had a child writing poetry? I'm interested in, in, in why that lens appealed you know, to you. It came or... on its own without a why, and um, it was something that would, every evening, when I would be meant to be studying Latin or how to make methane gas or something I wasn't interested in, that I would just come and a line would come and I would start and it would keep me going for ages. Mm. Yeah. And you and and you managed some of them were published in a in a in a religious magazine. Is that yeah, right? yeah. There was a wonderful Capuchin magazine called Irig, and it was for teenagers and it was very good. It was I mean it was literate. It took you seriously, and it had it didn't just have a poetry corner. It had serious poems, and they wrote me serious letters about. Um, you know, what I might do to a poem to improve it. And uh, they were terribly nice. And uh, I discovered to my absolute horror that, of course, like all these institutions, they have a great archivist. And um, they kept everything from that time. Right. And they wrote to me about something to say that we have everything in some Capuchin archive. And <laughs> it's so frightening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Growing up, you're, you're uh, I'm thinking of Donald and thinking of the character Donald and thinking about you. You've said that, um, that there was a lot of silence at home, that um, a, lot of, a lot of stuff that wasn't spoken about. Can you say something about that? And um, yeah, yeah, my father died when I was 12 and it's very difficult for anyone to know how to handle that. I mean, not the funeral and not the immediate weeks what to do then, how much to mention him, how much not to, whether you should get on with things, just get on, get on with things yeah. and leave all that behind. And if you do that, which, which is what people's tendency is, just to get on with things, then you create a sort of um, something funny in, in, in the wake of the silence, you know, that means that something becomes unmentionable, that feelings become unfelt. 
It isn't that feelings just, it isn't that the feelings become unmentionable, that's obvious, but that the feelings themselves don't actually get felt. Mm. And so you end up, um, I mean, it took me a long time to work that out as to what it was that had happened. And um, so that, that, and it was a, it was a, it was a coping mechanism and, and mm. it, it served its purpose, but you, there's, there's no right way of doing all that. There's no, yeah, um, yeah. It, the thing in itself is a disaster for that reason, in, yeah. that, in that it leaves behind all sorts of possibilities, none of which is right. Yeah. And so I, I was caught in the snare of that. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I think, such an important, such an important point that there is no right way to do that, to grieve or to parent or to, yeah. to, to look after children. Yeah. Yeah. When, when they've encountered probably their greatest fear that a parent, a parent is gone, yeah. is, no, is no more. What, yeah. What? Yeah, that it isn't as though, I mean, you can't really blame anyone for doing anything because the, the alternative was also difficult. Yeah. Gollum, did you get that, um, you know, you've got to be the man of the house now? You know that? that <laughs> we, we... Uh, yeah, to some extent, but it, it came ambiguously because um, someone had to make the dinner. And the dinner was in the middle of the day. It was, it was Irish town and uh, my mother got a job and she couldn't make the dinner. So um, I got out, I mean, it was really, I got out of Christian doctrine early. I was just at, a, I think, a quarter past 12. I would stand up and just leave the class and I would go home on my own in the house, age 12. And I would cook, I would cook, I would cook lunch. I would, lunch, it was never called lunch, it was yeah. dinner. Yeah. I would cook yeah. dinner and my aunt would come and my younger brother and my mother. And I would, when they all came, I would have everything ready for them, the table set, the, the whole thing out. Yeah, I did that. And, Did uh, you really? Yeah. So it wasn't just being the man of the house, it was being the woman of the house as well. It was, it was <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that business of being in the kitchen with everyone coming, it's, um, I mean, it's not a thing that many 12-year-olds get to feel, but it's, um, it's got its own satisfactions, you know, knowing that this will be, the potatoes will, will be boiled and they will be ready exactly on time for when so-and-so comes. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's um, the dreams of an everyday housewife. <laughs> Do you... It, 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 and it strikes me that in, in many ways, across, across the sweep of your work, you've, you've really worked with or on those relationships that defy death. So relationships that don't die when someone dies, they, they, they outlive that relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Louise Glick, um, we're talking at a time when she's just, when yes. Louise has just won the Nobel Prize. Mm. And she's someone who says, you know, I write well about widows. Yeah. <laughs> she has an, you know, an essay about her work. And she's talking about that the idea of what's lost, living on, not just in memory, but in a much more palpable present way, and that being part of the dream of a novel, as in the dream of her poems, that that separation between life and death, the past, the present, memory and... Um, you know, ordinary time, that those divisions can break down in a lovely way, even more in a poem, I think, but in a novel also, where it isn't just about haunting. Haunting would be the last thing I want. I, I hate haunting. Yeah. Um, but the, I mean the idea that somehow or other the, the, that, the, that the past is not past and um, that the figures who have passed on have not passed on. And that's so, so, in, so in the novel, you're, you're, you're holding a sort of, a sort of set of times that, that, that blur into one another as, as regards people's experience, even of the day, that, that, that the other parts of time will come in and out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that piece, that the, the, yeah, the past is not the past. Mm. These uh, relationships don't, don't, um, don't die with the death. Yeah. But in fact, continue yeah. to form and shape yeah. and make sense I mean, of her I mean, there's a moment in Nora Webster where she's watching her mother in her last hours or maybe you know, even when she's laid out as, as dead and she's seeing all of the faces. She's seeing elements in her mother of cousins, of aunts, of children, all sorts of people coming and going in those shadows. And it sort of speaks to her about mm. the idea of you know, mm. that, that, that some other, she's witnessing a moment that isn't just this moment in time, but a whole lot of other things. 
and and the silence and that that can be that you grew up with or that we can you've you've unpack you unpack a silence or you mm. um you you move very close to silence you see, or you see what, what i'm talking about it, it becomes a form of tact it becomes almost a form of politeness and um that you w- one is silent about many things that it doesn't do to discuss you know so I mean, I'm really not making this up, but it was terribly funny on a, the Late Late Show with Gay Byrne in those years. I'm talking about the 60s. It used to be on a Saturday night. And uh, he never told you in advance who was coming on. And I had an aunt and uncle who came to visit on a Saturday night. And so my mother loved the Late Late Show, so she turned it on and everyone would watch it. My uncle disapproved of Gay Byrne. He thought he was a young pup. And, um, and then <laughs> you'd never know who would come on. And people could come on and say anything they liked. And there was one night where um, Maura McEntee, the poet, mm-hmm. um, came on with her husband, it was Conrad Cruz O'Brien, and uh, they were both talking, and she just said how strange Ireland was in so many ways, and the way marriages were conducted. And she said, there are many couples who have never... And she said it on the late, late show, I bet you could find it if you went back and looked. There are many couples who have never seen one another naked. Well... <laughs> Well, the idea, the idea. I mean, I, in, I scrolled down through the street, you know, through our, through our, where we lived, and thought about some couples, and thought, well, I hope not. It, was un, it would be unimaginable. In other words, that people wore their sexuality so carefully, and so the silence around just what people actually did, how human beings came into the world, and stuff. Yeah. All of that was. Yeah. Um, just very politely put aside. I mean, it really couldn't be mentioned. But when she said it that night, it was such a frank thing to say. And I thought, well, why would they want? Why would they want? Like, wouldn't they be better? You know, and all of us know that business of undressing and dressing for another. And, you know, the whole business, and dressing on the beach, for example, the modesty being preserved and stuff. So um, there was so much that just, there was so much that, yeah. It wasn't mentioned for a really good reason that people just didn't want to, to talk about it. a lot of things, not just death and sex, and perhaps a lot of other things too, including money. We didn't talk about d- money. D- death, sex, and money. Yeah. 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 You, you're a James Baldwin fan, and um, go, go Tell It on the Mountain, um, about that kind of growing up in a, in a very religious uh, culture. Um, I mean, is, is that part of, of what you grew up in? I mean, a similar kind of... Tell us a little bit yeah, about I mean, that. I, I mean, I don't feel it as a repressive um, religious culture. It didn't feel repressed or repressive. It, it opened up things a lot about, you know, um, beauty. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about... Well, boredom, first of all, the, the, the long, long sermons and the masses and the benediction and the confraternity and the sheer boredom. Mm. But it was very good because you got used to being bored. You thought that's what adults do to you, they bore you. And um, I remember Philip Larkin saying that he, he, didn't, he didn't know. He always thought he just hated everyone. But he just realised later that it was other children. <laughs> 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 and... Uh, this, um, but with me, it was adults, you know, they were so boring and they were so boring. And um, when I read James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain, I did recognize the sensuous way that he was handling religious feeling and religious belief and the way in which almost the going to the church and the invoking the almighty in the sky and prayer and the Bible and the crucifixion and the redemption all of it. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm not suggesting it was sexual, although it almost is, but I'm saying it was sensual, yeah. that, 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 that he took it in via his body yeah. and that it satisfied something in him. Yeah. And that's beautifully rendered in that book. And what's fascinating about Baldwin's own career is the way that he then wrote Giovanni's Room, a novel set among white homosexual people in Paris, and then realized, look, that's, my, that's my family, the first book, my friends, the second book. And then in another country, the third novel, he tried to bring the two together, which is a fascinating idea. You know, he tried mm. to connect mm. um, Harlem mm. with Greenwich Village. And, uh, you, you know, with that trajectory of his is, 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 I think, a fascinating one for anyone who's Irish or has, who's known Irish Catholicism. That, that mixture of um, the stained glass, the hymns, 
the um, incense, the prayers, um, as a sort of, as a sort of beauty, coming with a sort of set of restrictions and rules and rather frightening forms of punishment, including um, um, burning in hell for all eternity, which um, really, when you think about it, um, you know, um, I, um, um, in, there's a recent novel by Marilyn Robinson where she, she thinks about hell. And Marilyn is, Robinson is a, is, is a serious Calvinist. And so I was interested in what she would, how she would view hell but she doesn't, in the novel, it's not flames, hell. It's, um, it's a disheartened self-awareness. A disheartened self-awareness. That would be Beautiful. hell. Wow. In other words, you'd yeah. die and you'd realize you'd messed up completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. You'd, yeah. you'd done horrible things. And so you would have, in, in eternity, you'd be really self-aware and you'd be disheartened. self-awareness. Just, just, just disheartened. That sounded pretty grim to pretty me. Pretty grim. Although I prefer it to flame, burn. <laughs> burn. I prefer it to burning for all eternity. Mm. And Colum, that, that you, that, that 10, 12, 14 year old growing up in that kind of environment, growing up emer an emerging sexuality, how did it shape, inform, constrict or not? Well, Oh, I think everyone who was gay then, and perhaps e even to some extent still, is marked. And the, the mark is, is, is that you know something that you cannot say. And even if it only happens to somebody now, in our freedoms we have now, for six months or a year, it's still a mark. But um, for my generation, it lasted longer. Yeah. And um, you learned very quickly and very easily how to navigate, you know. And, you know, what you learned really was the night where you realized that two of your friends are staying on somewhere longer than they should because there are two girls over there. And whatever it is you're watching, you realize that that impulse towards the girls is really keeping them going. And you want to just, why, why, why are we doing this? And you realize that that's actually, for them, the most important thing in the world just now and you're out of that loop, and you're always going to be out of that loop. And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it, it trains you in a sort of um, self-discipline that really is, is probably quite damaging. So, yeah, Colm, that kind of, that shaping, that silence, that shapes, that silence, that, um, that for, the, the silence that kind of forms, particularly maybe the child who's growing up gay, the child who's growing up in an environment where he or she is, is different or, or unusual, um, it leaves its mark, yeah? It leaves its mark, but I wouldn't dwell on it too much in, in the sense that um, I think for anyone it's possible, and certainly it was for me, to find um, a very comfortable place to be, you know, certainly in Dublin in those years, it might seem, in, in retrospect, like a conservative place or a difficult place to be, but it wasn't like that. Uh, you know, that in other words, you found your friends and um, you created a cocoon for yourself, as everyone does in some way or other, and um, the, the, you, you put all that aside mm. in, in a way and just got on with things. You know, it, it wasn't yeah. a permanent business yeah. of feeling marked or feeling uncomfortable or yeah. feeling left out. That, um, it yeah. just wasn't like that. Yeah. And um, I mean, when you think about it later, obviously the whole sense of repression um, organized by a number of people from the church and state was really quite severe, but it didn't feel like that on the night. Right. On the night yeah, when yeah. you're yeah, yeah. wondering, is, well, is there any chance that someone has a bottle of wine left over from some party in their, in, in their flat yeah. and you could go now and drink. Yeah. Like, it's not thinking about, am I repressed? No, yeah. am I? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, yeah. so it just wasn't like. So, so, so coming, you, you came to UCD in 1972 um, and I think we're one of the first groups to, to be in Belfield and, yeah. and on yeah. where, where UCD yeah. is, kind of, is, is now, yeah. moved from here to yeah. there. 
Um, so, so, and you found your community. I mean, yeah, and I yeah. think which is an experience for for minority for, for for human beings. We yeah, yeah. we find our tribe or we find our community. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't a time that was particularly lonely or. No, I, I mean, UCD um, in nine seventy two was intellectually very stimulating, and 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 if you had any interest in your subject, then whatever way it worked. Um, but they, they, they did something funny, and this both in history and in English. It was they didn't patronize you. They didn't see that you were just somebody coming from school age 17 and that you had to be spoken down to. Uh, so that really following them was challenging. And um, you realize you were being taken very seriously. And there were absolutely brilliant people involved. And um, to this day, you realize that extraordinary gift um, of how seriously um, the history department and the English department took undergraduates. And um, this isn't, I mean, in, in other institutions, you know, people care about their graduate students much more, yeah. or they care about their own research, or they're too busy. But there wasn't that sense yeah. ever uh, from people like Dennis Donahue or Seamus Dean, um, or people like Fergus Darcy in the history department. It just, it just wasn't like that. Or, or Margaret McCurtain, you know, that they yeah. were absolutely totally engaged yeah. in whatever it was they were saying. And if you were any use at all, you responded to that. Yeah. And, and I, get the, I get the impression that you, you really like the classroom. You really like... <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Yes, I do. I really get yes, that I feel. Really, I really like the classroom. Yeah, I get that. That is um, that business of suddenly something new getting said that creates an excitement. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, recently I had a student um, in Colombia and, uh, you know, I had said to her, an undergraduate student, and, and, and I said to her, you know, you should really go down to the Morgan Library and look at the Oscar Wilde papers. Since you're working on Wilde, you're doing this essay on Wilde, why don't I call someone at the Morgan and arrange for you to get into the, look at just, so you see his handwriting, just yeah, see yeah, the thing. Yeah. And she came back up and said, I found something. I haven't seen, was it, Wilde has a letter to an English editor saying, could you check this work for the wills and the shalls? Being Irish, I, can't, I can never work out whether it should be will or shall. And it's Wilde saying he's an Irishman and his command, what he's meant, meant Wilde's uh, meant it's such command of English. Yeah, he yeah, calls yeah. himself a lord of language. Yeah. Well, here he is with the usual Irish problem. It's like bring and take, will and shall. And she'd found this. And she came back up realising um, and she's of Asian origin, that this was significant oh, as, a, yeah. as an interesting thing about, that I had been talking about, about yeah. Wilde's outsiderness, not only as a sort of a sexual outlaw, yeah. but as an Irishman in London. Yeah. And uh, they get excited. Yeah. Everyone in the class gets this. Oh, this is a piece of evidence. We really need this piece of evidence you know, to show yeah. how insecure Wilde yeah. was, even with the English language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm talking about yeah. that sort of um, moment, you know, and... Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I like all that. Yeah. yeah. You, in, um, when you were awarded the the, the Penn Award, um, Mary Mary Cloak, I think the director of the Arts Council, said that she described you as a, as a champion of minorities. Um, and I'm wondering about where that championing came from, comes from. Tell me a little bit. Well, about I wouldn't that, or, overdo or, that. You know, I, I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's important to remember that in the very early days um, of what we might call the gay liberation movement in Ireland, there were a number of very brave individuals, and I wasn't one of them, and that they really put themselves out, put themselves on the line, and um, um, you know, so. Mm. You, you wouldn't want to t start taking credit for things that other people really, okay. really should be. Okay. People like Tony Walsh, you know, were, were really, um, um, really out there, you yeah. know. And, um, and Colin, what was it that, what, what kept you back then? What, what? Oh, well, you know, I, I think the first thing is I'm not a natural crusader. And, um, but the other thing was, I, yeah, I just wasn't, I, I wouldn't have been comfortable at the time. That's mm. simple as mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. I think um, everyone in the movement respected that there were people who didn't, you know, people who did and people who did sometimes, people who didn't other times. Mm. But there were marvellous people who did, mm. you know, I mean, I suppose David Norris being the main one, actually. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. um, 
and then there were others who, who mm. you know, didn't, and I was one of the others. Mm. Your, your, your contribution, uh, many years later, your contribution to the marriage equality campaign, um, I, I remember as being significant. Um, and if I'm right, you said that you, you really wanted the right to marry a partner in Enniscorty. <laughs> uh, you might want um, to do it, but, 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 but it um, was, it, your intervention at the time was very important. It, it was a terribly interesting campaign. It was run with extraordinary amount of care. Um, and um, people like Brian Sheehan yeah. um, really put an extraordinary amount of thought into it. Um, and uh, so I wrote a few speeches for politicians uh, that I don't want, you know, I wouldn't like to mm. say who, but just trying to f give them a tone that would really make people sit up and listen. Mm. Um, and it was really to make it all personal, to make none of it political. Everything was about what your daughter would feel. You know, what if your daughter... And I did a thing on the radio one morning. And, um, I mean, it was an interesting campaign because the other side were not calling us names, you know. Yeah. It was not a bitter campaign in that sense. Yeah. Uh, it was very mannerly. And... Um, but Morning Ireland did stuff like that you didn't get involved in a debate. They had someone from the other side talking for you know, seven minutes and yeah. then you for seven minutes without the two of you having to even see each other. <laughs> yeah. and, um, but it was just saying, the, the question was trying to be as tentative as possible, not be certain, and to say, I don't understand how I can be used. You know, that um, I get, for example... If I'm, in a, if I'm in China, you know, the embassy will come and I will, there will be a dinner and I will be sort of forefronting some sort of idea about Ireland, that I could do that. But the, but the basic right to have love recognised as ritual is something I cannot have, I'm left out of. Now, why is that? What is the problem? Why should that be? Why would it not be the other way around? Yeah. And, um, but also then there was a wonderful event at Trinity where um, with a full hall of students, I mean, it was a really a wonderful high moment where um, I got to talk about writers like John Broderick and Kate O'Brien, gay writers from the past, who had really had quite messed up lives, as well as having brilliant careers, but mm -hmm. messed up lives because of their sexuality. And um, you know, it ended badly for them in ways. And, um, just trying to re remember what mm. it was they did and how they lived, but also just to look at the way in which, say, the Supreme Court, the Irish Supreme Court, in the, in the Norris judgment, I mean, absolute idiot of itself, the most disgraceful judgment, Tom Higgins' judgment, using evidence that wasn't ever given to the court, throwing in his prejudices as judgment, and two judges um, concurring with him, and one of those judges later being made Chief Justice, and you realise, actually, the Supreme Court has a case to answer to this day on this, not, not just a dark moment, a moment of absolute mm. asinine stupidity. I mean, it wasn't a single... And one of the other judges, um, you know, pointed this out at the time in his judgment, saying, you know, the, that Judge Hensey pointed out that Tom O'Higgins' judgment had no basis in... in yeah. you know, had never been presented to the court, had never been tested. So it was fun because you could go mm. through their yeah. language. Yeah forensically and yeah. we just fell around laughing at the idea that these grown men pay this salary and called yeah. things like chief justice were such idiots and and it was really where where europe came in and the european court of of, of human rights yeah um the european um you know mary robinson brought the case to europe and um the european court of human rights in 1988 Declare, you know, I call on Ireland to change this. Yeah. And um, yeah. the, the Irish case, the Irish, uh, um, it was a lovely thing. They said, um, we don't use the law. Which, you know, yeah. if this yeah. Protestant judge, I think you don't yeah. use the law, well, then change the law. Yeah. We said, yeah. no, no, we don't change yeah. the law. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, yeah. yeah, it was changed in 1988. And then it took, them, it took them a few years to actually do the thing. You, know, to, you, you, you to go back to the referendum, the, the marriage equality referendum and the campaign um, column, it being it being it being won um, on on the back of, of story essentially and, and people's stories. Um, what, what, what does the novel? What, what can? What does the novel do 
for minorities, for those who are silenced, for those to advance human rights? Well, what can and has well, the, the novel The only done? way I can answer that is by telling you a story that um, um, when I published my novel, The Story of the Night, which is really about a gay character, and I published that novel in 1996, and um, sometime afterwards I got a letter from Peter Sutherland, who had been the Attorney General, um, who was the European Commissioner, who was eventually Head of World Trade, mm. and was Goldman Sachs, was all those things. And the letter was said to me, um, I just didn't know that gay men felt love in the way you describe. I don't know how I thought it, but I thought that it was a physical thing. It was about just wanting to have sex with each other. But I didn't know it stretched into the romantic, into the um, emotional, and into you know, longing um, for somebody else's company or their phone call mm -hmm. or their attention, mm -hmm. someone of the same sex. I just didn't know until I read your novel. And I thought, wow, if Peter Sutherland doesn't know this, who else doesn't know yeah, this? Yeah. And also, maybe the only way he was ever going to find out was in a novel. Yeah. You know, maybe if you tried to debate with sure. him, he wouldn't get it sure. in the debate. But if you gave it a novel, I thought that it was an amazing moment for... Um, and I think it happened with gay relationships, arising from what Adrian Rich said, that you know, the gay people found it, because there were no images, that you looked in the mirror and there was no one <laughs> in the glass. In other words, that, that you just didn't see yourself. If you were trying to start a relationship, you didn't have any way of working out um, what everyone else did. They had Romeo and Juliet. They had, um, yeah, you know, yeah. they had everything to yeah, go, yeah, to go yeah. with, you know. And um, so um, a novel became, I think, in relationships where you would get a David Levitt novel or an Edmund White novel or a James Baldwin novel, Jeanette Winterson novel, Emma Donoghue novel, um, and you would pass it between you. And that would become a way a third person in the room yeah. Was, yeah. Um, was the book. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think every gay couple knows this. I mean, it could also yeah. be a movie. It could also be a TV series, but it was, had to be something. You had to sit together yeah. and watch the gay movie yeah. or sit together and talk about the book. Yeah. And it wasn't nothing. Yeah. It was about some idea. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to say identity building because it's a stupid thing to say, but I mean some idea of reinforcing mm. um, emotions mm. that were raw and mm. there, mm. but didn't have an objective mm -hmm. quality. Yeah. You couldn't see them yeah. as, that, therefore, therefore you couldn't trust them yeah. or know they were real. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's the strangest yeah. idea yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, if you're gay. Yeah, and, and, and such a powerful force. I mean, if you look at our history mm. of censorship, mm. um, such a powerful force to, 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 to not give that image mm. or to not give that mirror to look in. Yeah. Um, very, very powerful. Yeah, I think people here understood very clearly, I mean, that, that books are dangerous. Yeah. And books are effective. Yeah. And um, they're much more effective than film because yeah. of this, that you read in silence yeah. and no one can see what you're thinking. Yeah. And it's just you and the, you yeah. and the, you know, you and turning the page. And uh, I think you can be transformed by a book. And that yeah. makes, um, <clears throat> you know, it makes gay fiction very important. Yeah. The, um, I'm reminded of a, a friend um, who, as a child, he used to sneak into the library in school and in the dictionary find the word homosexual and read it um, to simply know that there were others, uh, there were others out there. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. so how, how powerful, how, mm. how powerful mm. that is. Colin, can I ask you a little bit about, about lockdown, where we're, um, we're in some shape or form of it um, for uh, quite some time now. Um, you, 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 we've talked about silence. You, you, you've talked about how your work um, comes out of silence or silence and solitude mm. playing a very important role in, in your writing and your work. Has, what's it been like over the last kind of six or eight months? Um, in America, it's very different to Ireland because um, it really became a battle between Democrats and Republicans rather than between um, the government or the people and the virus. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you actually felt that whatever was going on, it was not right, you know, and 
that um, it was a terrible battle of egos and, um, and there was a daily business of watching some outrage being committed by um, some governor or by the president and very little sense been spoken by anybody and um, that um, so you know there, there are two areas in which America has um, I think it's one one twentieth of the world's population but one fifth of prisoners and one fifth of coronavirus sufferers. Wow. You know, in other words, there are two areas where you can get that figure, one fifth, one twentieth. Yeah. You get people in prison and coronavirus. And um, so um, America is a big, brutal place and mm. it's not, um, you know, it's not well run in any way. Mm. And um, all the news from Ireland was the opposite. Now, I know things changed slightly in Ireland, but I'm talking about the first, say, five months where you really did have a sort of extraordinary sense of social cohesion, of people actually, people of every generation, yeah. actually listening to the chief medical officer, listening to the Taoiseach, listening to the Minister of Health, and yeah. there was a sense of the country united um, the, against the virus. And, and um, the sort of level of trust of public officials was really extraordinary. Yeah. And um, so th that, that's a fascinating yeah. thing to watch, the way the difference between Ireland and America. Yeah. But I, I, mean, I think if you're a writer, you have a duty to shut up sometimes about um, you know, what you're going through and that what you're going through is absolutely no interest. I mean, really, just none. And um, like, just keep really, yeah. keep really quiet because people have lost their jobs. You know, sure. people are worrying, you know, yep. that, that yeah. you know, the government se seems to feel that they've done a wonderful job and just given people some basic amount yeah. of money, yeah. whereas people have actually yeah. lost their jobs. And, and, people, yeah. and things, are, things will, are closing that might never open again. Um, when you, when you, you had a pretty difficult year before that too. You you had a cancer diagnosis and really aggressive, really aggressive treatment. Um, was it 2009, two, 2018, yeah, I did, yeah. And and I, I I've worked in in cancer care for for many years, and um, I know it's often a time when the kind of big questions come up for people about meaning and contribution and those big existential kind of questions. Did that happen for you no, at all? No, it didn't at all. Did, um, no? no, really it didn't. I, I learned absolutely nothing um, <laughs> from having cancer, except that I just need to get this over with so I could get on with things. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, think that, um, I think that most people really work out a lot of things for themselves in, in, in health. You know, in other words, it doesn't take sickness to make you think about what sort of relationships you want or what sort of life you want or what life means. Yeah. I think that people can do that in health right. much better mm -hmm. where they've got every option and they've got time to laugh and they've got, you know, leisure time yeah. and, they've, and they feel good and um, that um, yeah. Ireland is good, there's a long winter and the seasonal thing in Ireland is so wonderful, the big, the big gaps between seasons. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, like, I, I think if, you're, if, if you want to say, outline that, it takes a cancer diagnosis for you to actually wake up to the fact that you're, you know, who you are. I, I think there's to be something wrong with you to start with, you know. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I remember okay. lying there and there was a lot of lying there thinking, like, I just want this to be over. And when this is over, I'm going to go back to being exactly the same as I was before it started, in as many ways as I possibly can. But the idea that I had a road to Damascus, that halfway through the chemo, I suddenly found God or love <laughs> or guilt, or I decided no. to change my life, that I was going to swim more or be kinder to dogs or, <laughs> or you know, adopt a cat or, you know, you know, no. uh, you know, devote my life to yeah. Mother Teresa, you know. I, I just, I just, I, I just no. actually, if everyone doesn't mind, I would like to get my taste back. And when I get it back, I'm going to eat what I ate before I lost. <laughs> uh, you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so no, yeah. I learned absolutely yeah. nothing about anything, yeah. you know, other than what is interesting is that time passes. That's what time does. And something that seemed so enormous two years ago, that it was just this time two years ago, you should have seen me. I had no eyebrows. Not only, you know, this is still like, <laughs> this is just like baby hair, it's still growing stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I had no eyebrows yeah. and I had no taste. Yeah. And I was probably skinny, and um, I probably looked really, really miserable. <laughs> and I would shuffle along. And um, I mean, one the biggest moment, and the moment that made me laugh most, was was one day where 
I, I hailed a taxi. And when I got up close, but the taxi stopped and I got in close and he could see me. He drove off. <laughs> he was so frightened by the look. It looked so awful. Yeah, that he drove off. No, I thought this was, I thought it's the best story. I have a story now for the week. I have something, you know, rather than telling people about some unfortunate side effect of this drug, I now, have, I now have this Out wonderful story about being despised by the taxi drivers of Dublin. And uh, I think he might have thought that I was um, a drug addict. Yeah, you know, right. and yeah, I, yeah, I had yeah, some stuff yeah. in the pharmacy with me okay. in my hand. So you might have thought I was, um, oh, methadone, you know, methadone. Bo- bo- yeah. yeah. So, so to be fair to me, you might have thought that I was going to cause havoc right, right. in his taxi. Yeah. Which was, was just <laughs> so skinny and so weak. But I just you, wanted you could, you know, to go get home. home you know? Yeah, get me home. And there was another day, which is pretty cool, where I decided that I would go to the supermarket. And I really couldn't do that. But I got down to it. And uh, I, then in the supermarket, I just literally, and I had to, it's like being an old lady, I had to ask for a chair. And they were so nice to me, brought me water. And eventually I got, you know, my, out of the supermarket. I mean, I had to, they had to bring the basket up. They had to come back to tell me how much it was. They had to, you know, and then I shuffled out, like it was tremendous. And everyone looking for me, poor man, look at him, you know, on death's door. And I felt almost theatrical. But then the leg, the whole thing gave again on the bottom of bottom of Pembroke Street. I literally the said, I'm not good. I mean, the yeah, there was yeah. no chance that I could walk him. <laughs> and um, so I looked at everybody really carefully. I thought, if one person turns me down, I'm not asking anybody else. I mean, this is just, you know. So I looked at everyone. I studied everybody. And I saw this guy coming up the street. And he just looked really nice. And he turned out to be South African. And he, he was sort of cute, but he was also looked kind, you know, and he looked competent. He looked competent. He looked like he could be an accountant or something. Competent. And um, so I just said to him, look, um, I live up there, but I'm not really able to walk without falling over. I shouldn't be out at all, but um, could you just get me to my door up there? And then <laughs> I don't want anything else. Like, I'm not looking for money or I'm not looking for <laughs> anything else from you. Just if you could just like, and, and he was terrible as he brought me to my door and he told me maybe the next time I go out, I should go up with somebody. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, some of it was just pure the, comedy. The kindness and, of strangers. And, and I needed the comedy, you know, mm, I needed all that yeah, to... Yeah, sure, um, sure. To, how, um, how are you doing now? Are you... I'm are great. You, 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 yeah. You're well, I'm you're... Good, yeah. They're keeping an eye on you. Yeah, it's keeping an eye on me, and I'm good, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, other, the other kind of thread to, to your work that, that I'd like to maybe, if we could talk about briefly, is, is that of family and... Um, I think what I kind of understand from, from, from your work is the, maybe the kind of ambivalent or the paradoxical that we are, that we need to separate from a family um, in order to, to become who we are. And we are ultimately drawn back to that um, in, in many ways, even if it is or has been a source of distress or tension, something about that kind of paradox and hold that, that family have on us. Is, is, is that yeah, you see, I think it's a very good subject for a novel because it's, um, novels are very good about areas of um, conflict which are very difficult to define. Mm. So that idea of belonging somewhere, that somewhere you can always go back to, even, even in memory, that you, that you have this basic thing that has to do with maybe with blood, with early affection, with, 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 with associations and ties that you can really not easily sunder or, or, or cut. And then you're out in the world where you, you've made many choices and uh, you've drifted into things. I mean, you don't drift into a family. You're born into a family, but you drift into friendships and you drift into love affairs and, and uh, you drift into relationships. In other words, you don't know at the beginning. Things are always tentative. But that's not how family begins. Family begins yeah. in exactly the opposite way. Yeah. So you've got two ways in which your, your world has been made for you one casual and the other deliberate. Yeah. And um, then you, you, you know, you have to work all that out. Um, uh, and um, I think in a novel where if the family part becomes difficult, you see, if the friendship or love part becomes difficult, that's a simple thing. You just can drift away from people or you could, the reason you could break up. But with family, if that happens, it's a much more fraught Sure. and long-term problem and, mm. and difficulty, so that in a novel, you can work with that. Mm. You, can, you can get a lot of energy from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And you've been, um, to, my, to my mind at least, you've been, 
you've been really um, keen or, 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 or very careful about not sanitizing any of that, that the, the, the nuance, the brokenness, the, the fragility of, of family and, and, and of parenting. Yeah, I mean, I think in fiction you have a duty to be unsparing, you know, that if you decide this is too hard, and then you should do some other job, you know, that, that in other words, you, you actually need to go very tough, be very tough, and to, if something is, is, if something is difficult to define, then that's where you need to be. And therefore, you need to find images. And the images need to be as tough as possible. Um, and certainly not, you, need, you, you mustn't soften anything. Because that, that's really, the, the novel's job is not to offer comfort, e easy comfort, but to offer a, another sort of comfort, which is the result of, of things being clearly defined and being explicitly managed. You, you, you wrote Nora Webster over a long period of time, I think 12 or four, maybe 14 years, um, and in a, in, in, a, in a kind of a low-key, um, regular, um, unfinished, unfinished off kind of a way, um, almost an antidote to that, um, the self as a, as a self-improvement project that we'll kind of finish and wrap things up quite nicely. Can you say something yeah, about Yeah, I that? mean, it was a long time after these things had happened. So I had all the years to think about them. And I came to no good conclusion. So all I had were images. And then it was a question of finding a focus. And by finding the focus was by concentrating on the mother rather than the child. In other words, it's very, very difficult to write a novel from the point of view of a 12 or 13-year-old. You can write a short story from that point of view, but to get a full novel, there's almost a not enough felt life or sensibility within the, the things are too raw and unformed. So by, by moving, you know, it was always something, you'd, writing novels is strange, you, you often get a sudden idea in a flash when you least expect it, something comes to you, move it to the mother, concentrate on her rather than the children so that build it from her side as she's tentatively exploring what the world will be like in the future. So it isn't just what she's doing now is significant for her, it's that this is an act. This is the beginning of what life will be like, so that each time she moves out, it has an extra aura attached to it, which is that you know, this is, she's not just in a pub, she's thinking this is what I will be like when I want to go home, I can go home at any time, I don't have to yeah. find where my husband is. Yeah. And that, therefore that act, has a double, has a second time frame attached yeah, to it. Yeah. And so you're working with that. And um, also, the, the thing is not to exaggerate. The, the main thing, really, in, in both life and fiction, is that emotion should not exceed its cause. And um, so, so therefore, you know, don't have her grief-stricken crying all the time. Have it coming unexpectedly in funny ways, have her coping more than crying, but not have her coping too much either. Yeah. So you're constantly involved in a sort of balancing act with colors, as though if you put too much black here, yeah. people just say, yeah, we know, we know that already. So you've got to surprise us with something else. And, um, and so, I mean, in other words, her relationship to the children is often cold, often unfeeling, but, it, but then it suddenly isn't. Or she mm, just isn't mm, sure, mm. she doesn't think about the children, except that they're being fed and they're warm or something, but she doesn't mm. know that they're suffering like she is. But then suddenly she does. So you've got to always, yeah. always work with, yeah. with the opposite, yeah. as yeah. well as with the, you know, so, so you have a sort of dominant way of approaching some, a scene. Yeah. And then underneath the dominant, you bring in uh, as though uh, a sort of jarring note. And, and that, Kind of piece going about the, the the first family, the family that we don't choose, and how later on in life we maybe we find a second family, but mm. the, the the first family, and I, I I think sometimes how how difficult that can be for someone who's growing up in an environment where they don't fit into that. So so many LGBTI people, for example, might really struggle with the first family. Um, and we see, we've seen that in, in Blackwater Lighthouse. I think the piece is there um, about the kind of wider cultural piece. So 
been drawn back to the first family uh, in a way that's that's messy and that's broken um, is, is is another piece that I, I yeah I, I mean I work. mean with with the Blackwater Lightship I felt that um, that idea of going home of course home is the most fraught and difficult place for him it's probably where he shouldn't go but it's what he wants to do and there's a moment towards the end of the book where you know he's lying in his mother's arms and he, and one of his friends just says that's what he's wanted to do for so long. And the guys are so, I mean, it's a slightly unfair book in a way because the gay guys in the book are so wise. One of them is so wise, you know, yeah. like he's like a Greek chorus. There's nothing yeah. that he hasn't foreseen and mm-hmm. he, can, he can blame, he can hand out blame. He's a real little moralist of a guy and uh, <laughs> he's really irritating, yeah. you know. Yeah. But he nonetheless has been managing this very difficult business where this guy who just is afraid to go home. And, but if he does, he has to go home. And um, so the novel treats that business of, um, your, you know, he replaced his family with his friends. So his friends became his family. And then he wanted his family back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. his friends mm-hmm. almost feel sometimes in, that, in those six days that they're really not wanted. Mm. But the grandmother says to them at some point, could you all just yeah. get out of here? Yeah. This, this is us. Yeah. We're, is, yeah. we're his yeah. you know, world. Yeah. And one of them has to say, well, I'm sorry you weren't there. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so that argument goes on between yeah. this very moralistic, yeah. you know, clean living gay guy yeah. who's just so... And the grandmother at each other yeah. over this whole question of who owns him now? Yeah. Who does he belong to? Yeah. You as a sort of tug of war going yeah. on. Yeah. So, so, so the, that kind of collision of the first of the first and second yeah. family, yeah. and then the kind of hierarchy that can take place then around someone's illness or at the end of someone's life. Yeah. yeah. That who yeah. is who is the prime care? Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I think this is one of the great subjects in you know in the gay world is just what happened with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, yeah. where um, all these guys who had been you know living hedonistically or, or you know, just having a lot of a really good time suddenly became carers, suddenly became buddies, suddenly formed groups around somebody. So the level of care and sympathy, gay guys became nice guys. And, um, you know, th- th- this, this, this was an extraordinary phenomenon that, that I think that our world wasn't really changed by the epidemic. It was changed as well by the response to the epidemic. And while the, I mean, the epidemic was an, was an absolute disaster. I mean, it could not, I mean, I think, like, it was a plague. Um, but the actual stories within the plague um, are ones that I think maybe still even need to be told. So, Colm, you, you started to write poetry as, as a child, and you continue to write. Has the reason changed? Um, I've, I've been writing poetry recently. I mean, no one needs more poems. And if they do, they want them to be by Paul Muldoon or Maeve McGuckian or, you know, Paula Meehan. Like, they really don't want poems by me. Like, they just don't want them. And you realise at night, nobody wants this. And therefore, the impulse remains, but you almost think, look, I'll... And also, you know, if... A friendship would not survive long if you sent the friend constantly the poems you've been writing. So, I mean, it is, a, it is really something you'd be very, very careful with. That it's, um, but, uh, you know, um, I'd, well, I'll give you an example. Years ago, I went to Tunis to interview Yasser Arafat. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of drama around going to his place and he, the interviews were long. I did one on a Thursday and a second one on a Saturday. And, um, you know, he was armed. There were a lot of armed people around. This was a very important time because it was just before Oslo and he was beginning to w- want world publicity to suggest that he was a man of peace. And I write all this for this magazine for Esquire I was working for at the time. And I wrote it for Esquire and it was all over. But in my memory, when I think about it, and I think this is a difference between, say, a poem and an article in a magazine is the poem might tell the truth in a way that the article in the magazine has to pose. You have to pose as a concerned person about the Golan Heights, the, you know, the PLO, the, you know, mm. Mossad. Whereas actually, when you remember it, that in there was an anteroom before going into Arafat's office. And there were about 12 bodyguards. 
and they were all in leather jackets and tight jeans, and they were all young, and they were all pretty fit, and they were all standing around looking at me. And I was really quite fraught. I mean, it was quite, like, you know where to look. And if you caught one of their eyes, like, like you really, it wasn't as though they were going to attack you or do anything, but no, I wasn't sure how, it looked sexual. I mean, it felt all about sex to me. And I couldn't believe it, you know. They, they were all gorgeous, and they were all, and Arafat, you know, anyway, I, that, that's a poem. You know, in other words, that moment of, and if you gazed for too long, the guy would just look away. It, would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't be um, look away in, 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 in dislike or uh -huh. boredom. Like, they just, yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. like, it wasn't as though they were coming on to you yeah. or you to them. If, you know, they were just, they were just there. But nonetheless, it, it was a moment, you know. And, and, and that's a poem yeah. where, you, you know, you, you actually got to tell the truth about what happened that day in Arafat's place. Okay, all the other stuff is passed on. This remains a, 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 an emotion, a memory, and something also interesting. It's another thing about poetry that maybe a poem has to be interesting. In a way. And you think, is this poem interesting? And you think, well, if it's not interesting, like, don't write it in that case. You know, try and see if this is interesting. So what are, you <laughs> what are you writing? What are your poems about? Um, I don't, don't encourage me, but... I, <laughs> You know, I've been working on these poems. Say, part of a poem's job maybe is to look at the world in a new way. So that, say, I have a poem about the day um, when the votes were being counted in the gay marriage referendum, where two guys, this is, these are two completely fictional guys in their 60s who've, who've been gay all along, been known all the gay places in Dublin for the previous 40 years. And they meet up and they have lunch somewhere. And then, they, you know, I, I, somewhere in Fibsborough, and then they walk into town and then they go up to Dublin Castle. But they, as usual, they just think there are too many young gay guys. It's just like somehow or other, the ageist thing has really caught on in the gay world. And especially in the homosexual, you know, the male homosexual one. And there are all these gay guys with nice haircuts and, you know, they look really trendy. And they just don't feel they belong. And they feel it's just a new world and that they're too old to... Deal with it. And they decide they would like to go and visit. This is in the poem. All the places that they knew in all the years, the gay places in Dublin that have disappeared. So they go to look past by saunas that were really all the rage in the 80s, or Bartley Dunn's that was all the rage in the 60s, that uh, Rice's was all the rage in the 70s, that, you know, they, they discussed various public bathrooms that they used to know, um, some parks, Palmerston Park, Phoenix Park, that were part of that deal, um, the Hirschfeld Center within Temple Bar. So they just do a sort of tour, mm. sometimes just talking, and they make jokes like that for them, same sex. Say, same sex? When did that start, the phrase same sex? Because they said, you know, years ago, same sex would be if you had too much of the same sort of sex, you'd want novelty, so you might go to a park <laughs> or you go to a bar, you go to a public toilet or you go to a, you know, like, <laughs> that, that's what same sex used to be. Now, same, same sex. And uh, now the Taoiseach is talking about same sex. And uh, so the words, the words have changed. So they just go through, not nostalgically, but just that this is the world they have known. This is the world that is now, with this, this Saturday, the votes are being counted. That whole world that they're talking about of sort of furtive places to be um, will dissolve that the memory of those places will go. It's the sort of thing that uh, uh, George Chauncey, who uh, works, at, works at Columbia as well, he's an historian of gay New York. And it's all about those dotted lines, suggesting that down that street there was a place to the right, and it lasted three years, and it did, you know, people, you know, he's doing all that work for New York. And in the poem, I'm trying mm -hmm. to do all, just in, the, in, a, in a, you know, mm -hmm. I'm trying to do all the work for Dublin mm -hmm, just to say, mm -hmm. this is where, this is yeah. where, this is where. Yeah. But the two guys eventually just, they walk back towards Dublin Castle and they said, ah, oh, fuck it, we're just going home. You know, <laughs> and they just go, they said they're going to take the slow way home because yeah. that's not their world, yeah. that they're, you know, that they, they, they live in a, that, that day suggested a sort of end of history mm. and the beginning of a thing called the future. Mm. And I just wanted to register the fact that, mm. that there, were, there were a lot of echoes, shadows, mm. 
clues and dotted lines yeah. going back yeah. into a Dublin of the, yeah. uh, you know, of the of, of a much more repressed time, but it didn't feel repressed on some yeah. of those nights. Yeah, and and that idea that true that that poetry can tell a a truth, it can get to a truth and tell and tell a different story, seems to be part part of that too. Yeah, that I mean, if you're sitting up at night writing something that no one wants you might as well make it true and good because, you know, <laughs> I mean, telling, I mean, as well as doing something completely useless and unwanted, yeah. telling lies, being <laughs> dishonest yeah. within that yeah. would be, I think, a treble sort of way of, um, <laughs> of really yeah. wasting everyone's time. So, Colm, a very big thank you uh, on behalf of UCD, my colleagues in Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, uh, and, and our friends and colleagues here at Mali, the Museum of Literature Ireland. We really appreciate your time well, and you your generosity. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. thank you. For me, literature, for me, writers, for me, the, the, the arts, in, in some ways, um, capture, capture what's often um, missed in conversation, what's often missed um, um, historically when it comes to the lives of people um, who for various reasons in, in this country and beyond don't experience an equal world, uh, a world that is accommodating, is embracing of diversity and certainly a world that isn't inclusive. So. Uh, I, I, I feel the arts uh, and, and literature play a very, very central and important role in, in, in advocating for um, a more equal, a more just, a more diverse and inclusive society. You've been listening to a podcast from Radio Molly, which broadcasts from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. If you've enjoyed this programme, do consider becoming a Molly member or giving membership to a friend. It's the best way to support the museum and its programming. Visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. Thank you for listening.